always a privilege to me to speak to people who are at the beginning of their careers as I approach the end of mine. <clears throat> it was 80 years ago on the 11th of March that I accepted the Lord as my Savior. And something that lasts 80 years is really good. <laughs> I was speaking to a, a group of young people some time ago in Birmingham, Alabama. And I said, I've caught up on you young people. Uh, 1 to 30 is youth. 30 to 50 is middle age. 50 to 70 is old age. 70 to 80 is second childhood. And 80 to 90 is second youth. Well, I'm nearly finished my second youth, so I've caught up on you. But... Uh, I, want, I owe a lot to America because my conversion was uh, through a man whose name, you, when you hear it, you'll recognize his nationality. His name was John Quincy Adams Henry. So he came from a little town called Boston. So he must have been one of the succession, I think. But he was a temperance lecturer. There was such a thing as temperance once, but... Uh, he not only was a temperance lecturer, he was also an evangelist. And he held a campaign in our city and my parents took my sister and me along and we both accepted the Lord the same night. So I owe a great deal to America. I want to speak today about being the best that we can be for God. Uh, I don't know that you sing it over here, but we used to have a youth hymn, Just as I am, young, strong, and free, to be the best that I can be, for truth and righteousness and Thee, Lord of my life, I come. To be the best that I can be. I'd like to read a few verses from the letter to the Philippians, chapter 4 reading from verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. If you consider yourself mature, Paul says you should take the same view as he has on this matter. You'll notice that he says there, one thing I do. Now, in the previous chapter, in chapter 1 and verse 10, and I am giving it from the uh, Phillips translation, <coughs> Paul said, This is my prayer, that you may be able to discern what is highest and best, that, and you may be pure and blameless until the day of Jesus Christ. 
He prayed that they might be able to discern what was highest and best. Not what is high and good, but highest and best. And after all, since the Lord gave his very best for us, he gave himself for us, surely we ought to give our very best for him, that we may discern what is highest and best. Some years ago, I watched a TV program when a young fellow had just completed a grueling cycle race. He'd established a new record for our country. And afterwards, when the commentator, sports commentator, was interviewing him, he asked him one question that was a very good one. Sports commentators often ask a lot of silly questions, but this was a good one. He said, and what do you aim at for the future? And the young man, he didn't have to scratch his head to say, now really, what do I aim at for the future? Uh, Many people would have to scratch their head if I came and asked you, what do you aim at for the future? But this young man knew what he was aiming at. He said, I aim to be one of the best riders in the world. He didn't say, I aim to be a good rider. He was not content with bland mediocrity. He wanted to be one of the best riders in the world. Are you aiming to be best at anything? What are you aiming to be best at? Have you got a goal? Have you got a worthy ambition? Are you making the most of your life? Are you the very best now that you can be for God? Well, here's an opportunity for us to get our sights fixed. And uh, as it says in Hebrews 12, fix your eyes on Jesus and uh, have an ambition to be the very best for him. Now, our word ambition is not a New Testament word. It comes from the Latin, and it means that the idea behind it is facing both ways to gain an objective. And perhaps the best uh, illustration of that would be an unscrupulous politician who was canvassing for votes. And uh, the abortion lobby would approach him and say, now, if we give you our votes, will you look after our interests? Oh, yes, I'll look after your interests, all right. And then the pro-life lobby come and they say to him, if we give you our vote, will, will you look after our interests? Oh, yes, yes, I'll look after your interests. Facing both ways to gain an objective. But that's, uh, that's not the New Testament word. Worldly ambition is like that. Even secular writers have seen the seamy side of ambition. And you and I have seen men and women climbing over each other in order to attain what they want. And it doesn't matter what ruin they leave in their train so long as their ambition is realized. We've all seen that. When you come to think of it, worldly ambition generally centers around one of three things, or sometimes more than one. Worldly ambition 
sometimes centers around a desire for popularity, a desire for fame, a desire to be somebody. Well, we don't want to be nobodies. God doesn't want us to be nobodies. But it all depends on the motivation. Why do I want to be somebody? Why do I want fame? Why do I want popularity? Then another way in which a worldly ambition moves is a desire to accumulate wealth, to get money, to make money. And you know, at your stage of life, you're looking forward to the future. Are you aiming largely to make money? Is that your ambition? I know it will be with many of you. You are, you're looking forward to the time when you'll get a good job and then you'll be able to get money and do what you want to do with it. Well, that's all right, provided the motivation is right. But you know, gold is not currency in heaven. Uh, heaven is not run on the gold standard. In, in matter of fact, gold is of so little value in heaven that the only use they can make for it, for, make with it is paving roads. The streets of heaven are paved with gold. It's of so little value, that's all you do with it. And wouldn't it be a terrible thing if you had, after working a whole lifetime, you found that all you've got at the end is a pile of road metal? That's what gold is. A desire to accumulate wealth. Jesus said, don't lay up treasure on earth. Send it all ahead. Heaven is my next stop. and I, I, I want to have something there in, to my, in my credit in the bank of heaven. Send it on. Don't lay up treasure on earth, but lay up treasure in heaven. Popularity and fame... Accumulation of wealth, and then the wielding of power, the desire to have authority, the desire to rule, a passion to rule. Well, we've seen people who had that passion to rule. We've seen Saddam Hussein, haven't we? He had a passion to rule. He had power. And how did he use it? Hitler had power. He, but... It had its moments of glory, but it brought an eternity of shame. It all depends why we want power. Is it for our own selves, or is it for the glory of God? All these three things have one fatal flaw about them. They all center on self. But Paul didn't use this word. He didn't use the Latin word. He used the Greek word, which has got a different meaning. It means to strive for noble ends, to have a love of honor. And Paul says he uses it three times himself. And his desire was, he was a tremendously ambitious man. Before his conversion, what did he want to do? He wanted to efface the name of Christ and to exterminate his church. But after his conversion, 
he didn't lose his ambition. He was just as ambitious as ever. But now it's turned into productive channels. And what is he anxious to do? He's anxious to exalt the name of Christ and to build up and edify his church. You see, his ambition was there both before and after his conversion. He was a missionary before his conversion. He was a missionary for Judaism. But when the Lord met him on the Damascus road, his whole ambition was turned right round, and he became a wonderful advocate for our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he used that word to have a love of honor, to strive for noble ends. You know, worldly ambition doesn't satisfy. Henry Martin was a young student at uh, Cambridge University uh, about a hundred years ago. And when he was 20, by the time he was 20, he had won the highest honor in the realm of mathematics in the world. He was the world top mathematician at the age of 20. But in telling of the experience afterwards. He said, I thought that I would be tremendously elated. But he said, after a while, I found that I had only grasped a shadow. There was nothing there. He got to the fame, he got to the top of the tree, but when he was there, what was it? Then he decided to give his life to Christ and uh, he went to India as a missionary. And when he reached India, he knelt down in the sands and he looked up to God and now, O oh God, may I burn out for thee. And burn out he did. In seven years, he had burned out. But what had he achieved during the seven years? He had given the New Testament to the to India in three of the leading languages. In seven years, he had translated the New Testament into three languages. He hadn't grasped the shadow. There was something he'd given the word of life to those people who spoke those languages. Yes, it's a, it's a wonderful thing when we yield ourselves up to the Lord. <clears throat> Count Zinzendorf was a, a nobleman in Germany about 200 years ago, and he had a little colony of about 300 people at the, uh, the village of Hernhut. And uh, these people uh, had a touch, the, the, the Lord visited them with a touch of revival. And wonderful things began to happen. And do you know that from that little group, at a time when there were very few missionaries in the world, they sent out 296 missionaries, and they went to countries all over the world. And from that little colony, more missionaries went out than the evangelical church had sent out in the previous two, in the surrounding two centuries. And they established a chain of prayer 
that went on 24 hours a day, 365 days a year for 100 years, the Moravian Church. And what was it sparked that church? Count Zinzendorf said, I have one passion. It is he, he alone. You see, he had one thing he did. Paul said, one thing I do. What is the one thing you do? Is there any one thing in your life that is supremely, supremely important? What is the one thing you do? Is it something worthwhile? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, he tells us what his ambition was. He said, we make it our ambition to please him. That was all. But is that not enough? If we are able to please the Lord, we will please everybody else who's worth pleasing. We make it our ambition to please him. When, when I'm making decisions, what do I say? Will this please me? Will this advance my interests? Or do we say, will this please him? Will this advance his interests? You know, if we adopted that attitude, it would solve a lot of our problems of guidance. You'd, you'd have half, half of the problem solved. If you asked yourself, will this please him? We make it our ambition to please him, he said. Now, James and John were ambitious fellows. Uh, when you think of the Apostle John, he, he, was, uh, he was the apostle of love, wasn't he? But uh, he wasn't always exactly a loving fellow. Uh, you remember when James and John and the other disciples with Jesus came to a certain Samaritan village and they wanted to go through the village, the Samaritans wouldn't let them. And what was the reaction of James and John? Lord, would you like us to call down fire from heaven and burn the whole show up? That's the apostle of love for you. <laughs> Do you wonder that Jesus called them Boanerges, sons of thunder? So they had a, a bit of a spark about them as well as ambition. And, but they, they came to Jesus, or rather they approached him through the mother, their mother, and uh, she asked uh, Jesus a very modest request. She said, uh, I'd like my sons to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your kingdom. See, they were lobbying for a spiritual ministry. But Jesus didn't play. The mother went away without any satisfying answer. And so the two brothers came, come to Jesus. And they said, Lord, we'd like you to do whatever we ask. That was not, not a bad way of putting it. And uh, Jesus said, well, what do you want me to do? Well, uh, we would just like one of us to sit on your right hand and one on your left when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, you do not know what you are asking. 
He said, can you drink the cup that I drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And they said, oh, yes, we can handle that all right. But Jesus said, you will drink the cup I drink. You will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But those positions are not in my authority. That's my Father's responsibility. Those positions are for those for whom they have been prepared. I want to speak about that tomorrow morning. But here you have these fellows ambitious. What for? That they might have priority and primacy in Christ's kingdom. Now, the Lord had already told them, uh, you will sit on 12, tri 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. They were going to have prominence in his kingdom. And you'd have thought that would have been satisfactory to them, but no. They were not satisfied with prominence. They wanted preeminence. And they wanted to be number one and number two in Christ's kingdom. And Jesus, knowing what lay ahead, Jesus told them, you don't know what you are asking. Their ambition was a self-centered ambition. A worthy ambition centers on Christ and his glory. And you know, when you place Christ on the throne of your heart, he is Lord of all, whether we recognize it or not. But when we recognize it and we give him the place of supreme authority uh, on the, the throne of our hearts, life begins and on a new plane altogether. But uh, some of you may say, well, I have had an experience like that when I did yield my life to Christ, but it hasn't lasted. I've taken it back again. I've taken certain things back. I don't always uh, obey him when he tells me what his will is. There's a verse in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3 which says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except through the Holy Spirit. Well, of course, that's not true. Anyone can say the words, Jesus is Lord. Anyone can say that. An unconverted person can say the words. But when you take the correct tense of that verb, it would run like this. No one can keep on saying Jesus is Lord of my life except through the Holy Spirit. You see, I can't maintain that attitude by myself. My will lets me down at the wrong, wrong time, doesn't it? You ever feel that your will is paralyzed just at the crucial moment? Well, here's this verse says, no one can keep on saying and keep on with Christ as the Lord of the life except through the agency and the operation of the Holy Spirit. But that's what the Holy Spirit has been given for. He is there, the paraclete, one who's been sent to take the place of Jesus. He is our Lord's other self. You know, when Jesus promised another comforter in John chapter 16, 
The word another in Greek, there are two words. One means another of a different kind, and the other means another of exactly the same kind. And what was Jesus saying? He said, I'm going to go and leave you. And that devastated them. But he said, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm going to send another comforter and he is exactly like me. Have you been mystified about the Holy Spirit? You read in the King James Version about the Holy Ghost. That doesn't help you to have much uh, idea of what the Holy Spirit is like. But I have found great help in remembering this. Jesus said, another comforter, one who is exactly like me. So the Holy Spirit is like Christ. And Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. God the Father is exactly like Jesus. And that brings a whole new realm, a new warmth of relationship, doesn't it? The Holy Spirit is exactly like Jesus. And what he was saying to those disciples was, I'm going to send him and he will be to you all that I would have been if I were with you in physical presence. He said, indeed, he will be more to you than I could have been. You see, when Jesus was on earth, he, uh, he was in a physical body. He could only be in one place at one time. He could only talk to one person at one time. And so he said, it's in your highest interest that I go away because I'm going to send another comforter. He's exactly like me. And uh, he can be with every believer throughout the world at the same time. You wonder, he said, it's to your advantage that I am going away. So there is the, the ministry, the gracious ministry of the Holy Spirit to enable us to keep Christ on the throne of our lives. When I was a young fellow and uh, unspiritual, there, there was a, 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 a position in Christian work that I thought, well, that would suit me right down to the ground. And I had two friends who could influence that thing in my direction if I approached them because they had uh, practically control of it. And uh, being unspiritual, I was uh, turning it over in my mind. Will I go and ask them to pull the string? And I remember walking down the main street of the city of Auckland in New Zealand and I stopped, this would be perhaps 60 years ago, uh, perhaps more than that. But I was walking down the street and I stopped there the other day because I remember the very spot where God spoke to me. I knew it was God because it was a verse of Scripture. And the verse of Scripture was the words that Jeremiah spoke to Barak. And what were the words? It came to me with tremendous force. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. Worldly ambition. Seeking great things for myself. 
God gave me the wisdom not to approach that person, those persons. Actually, it came to me without my seeking it afterwards. But I learned a lesson that I believe was a turning point in my whole life. Are you seeking great things for yourself? Seek them not. Don't seek them. I'm not saying, are you seeking great things? Seek them not. That wasn't what Jeremiah said. The operative words are for thyself. God needs great people in his kingdom. And there is room for a worthy ambition for God and his glory. Seek great things for God. That's why William Carey said, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. There is room for a holy ambition. And David Brainerd had a holy ambition like that. And he said, I cared not where I slept or what I ate. I cared not what hardships I could endure, but could I but win souls for Christ. Here was this consuming ambition. He had a, a great passion for the glory of God and he was prepared to suffer anything if only he could fulfill that ambition to win souls for God. Now, if we have an ambition like that, it will take total abandonment to the task if we are going to see that ambition realized. Today, there is widespread throughout the world, and I travel in very many countries, it's not peculiar to America, it's a phenomenon that is peculiar to the, to the whole uh, the Christian world, there is a disinclination for any long-term commitment. But you know, there is no such thing in the Bible as short-term discipleship. In John 6.66, it tells about Jesus, Jesus had just spoken uh, words that were rather that were referred to his death, his coming death. And uh, the people who heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. And then in John 6:66, it says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. They became dropouts because they, their discipleship was short-term. There is no such a thing as short-term discipleship. Oh, the, the location where that discipleship lived, is lived out may be short-term, but when I commit my life to Christ, it is a life commitment, just like marriage ought to be, till death do us part. Is your commitment to Christ like that, or is it short-term? How disappointed the Lord must have been when he saw many of his disciples going back and walking no more with him. It will take real determination. It will take real stamina. You know, when we are young, and I, I haven't forgotten what it's like to be young yet, 
When we were young, life seems like a hundred meter dash. And I'm thrilled to see young people full of enthusiasm and even if they go over the edge a bit violent, well, that's uh, to be expected. But uh, when you're old, you realize that life isn't a 100-meter dash, it's a 26-mile marathon. And uh, it takes stamina and purpose of heart. I was at the 1956 Olympics in Australia, and I, I saw two races. I saw Betty Cuthbert, who was the fastest woman in the world. I saw her win the 100 meters dash. Now, I went over to be at the starting blocks to see how she started. And there were the, the, the whole uh, the string of the girls, and they were all in the starting blocks. But Betty won the, won the race in the, in the first second. She was off just like a streak of lightning. And she would just left them behind. That was one race I saw. But I saw another one. It was the 10,000 meter race. And there was a good number of, of starters. And for the first round or two, they, they all stuck close together. There was one fellow who was just a few yards ahead, but uh, they stuck close until a third of the race had gone. And then the fellow at the front, he just moved ahead. His name was Karl Kutz, a Russian. And he moved ahead. And then he moved further ahead. And you know, he won the race in the middle lap. It's wonderful to start well, like Betty Cuthbert. She run the, won, won the race. It's wonderful to start well in the Christian life. You see, you've got the impetus of the start. And when you get near the end, you, you've got the, the tape beckoning you. And you've got that incentive. But it's in the middle of the race that it is won or lost. And so often people who started well, who went up like a rocket in middle life, they come down like a stick. I'm saying that you aim to have a continuing discipleship right to the very end. There was a, a Greek uh, orator named Demosthenes. And uh, the first time, we, we read, the first time he appeared on the stage, he made a terrible impression. His... Uh, personality, his appearance was unimpressed, unimpressive. He had a bad stammer. Uh, he made grimaces uh, when he was speaking. Uh, his voice was harsh and rather weak. And he had an ugly habit of hitching his shoulder. And every now and again, his shoulder would go up. Well, that doesn't help a public speaker. And uh, uh, they, they booed him off the stage. But when he went out the door, he said, They will hear me yet. And when he went home, the first thing he did was to shave off half his hair. Well, you fellas wouldn't like to go out to a party with your, half your hair shaved off, would you? Why did he do that? He said, I am going to give myself to oratory. And he, that, that would help him to not to do too much socializing. 
And he used to go down to the shores of the Aegean Sea and he would compete with the waves to give strength to his voice. He used to speak with pebbles in his mouth to overcome his stammer. He used to do his oratory in front of a glass so that he could correct the facial contortions. But there was one thing, he couldn't master this shoulder hitching it until at last he hit on a bright idea. And from the ceiling he suspended a sword with the sharp point resting on his shoulder. And it was quite surprising how little he wanted to hitch his shoulder now. You see, here was a man who said, they will hear me yet. Philip of Spain marched against Greece and the rulers of that country summoned two of their orators to galvanize the nation into action so that they could throw back the invader. And Demosthenes, I forget the name of the other, we'll say it was Cicero. Demosthenes and Cicero uh, were the two chosen. Cicero went first and he made a wonderful oration and at the end the people said, what wonderful oratory. Then it came Demosthenes' turn and he gave a wonderful oration. But when he had finished, the people didn't say what marvelous oratory. They said, come, let us fight Philip. They will hear me yet. He had an ambition that he would conquer his weaknesses. He would be able to influence his whole nation. And he did it. They heard him because he did one thing superbly well. What is the one thing you do? What is the one thing you're going to do? What is the one thing you are aiming to be best at? But you know, if you have an ambition like that, there's somebody who is going to contest that. We have an adversary. And that adversary is the devil. And he's going to do all that he can to prevent us from bringing glory and honor to God and being the very best we can be for him. You know, if we have a master ambition, one that really grips us, it unifies the whole of life, it integrates the whole of life, it flows in one channel. But if we have no objective and no goal and no one thing that is of supreme importance, our lives will just go on in dull mediocrity instead of being the best we can be intellectually, physically, spiritually for God. But the devil is going to challenge that. You think of Joseph, for example. Joseph, who was his father's spoilt boy. And then God took a hand and for 13 long years everything went wrong for Joseph. Thrown in the pit, sold to the Midianites, sold to Potiphar, seduced by Potiphar's wife, thrown into jail. 
And at the end of 13 long years, the best years of his life, there he is forgotten in a dungeon. And he had been true to God all along. But remember that he had been seduced by Potiphar's wife. And it wasn't one just one temptation. It says she spoke to him day by day. And there came the continual t uh, sexual temptation. And Joseph had been absolutely faithful to God. He had a purpose in his heart that he would retain his purity. And at last he, he retained his purity by running away and leaving his garment behind. And that resulted in him being thrown into the, the, the dungeon. Here Satan will endeavor to sidetrack us and he'll, if he can do it through sex, he'll do it. There was a young pastor came to an older man and he said, well, I'm beginning my ministry. Have you got one thing you would say to a young man? Well, being an old man, the old man said, yes, I've got three things. <laughs> and the first one, don't touch the glory. He said, if God is pleased to use you in your, your service and in your ministry, see that you give the glory to the one to whom it belongs. Don't touch the glory. The second one was, don't touch the gold. Don't allow financial considerations to be the final or the determining thing in any decision you make in life. It will necessarily be an important thing, but don't let it be the determining thing. Don't touch the gold. And the third was, don't touch the girl. Now, you and I know we've seen the sad results of uh, doing just that. And he said, don't touch the girl. You know, there are touches that say more than the touch. Don't touch the girl. Joseph retained his purity. And there he is at the end of 13 years and forgotten. And God had not let, given him an inkling that he had anything more for him. Whereas God had been preparing a dizzying ministry for him. He was going to be the second most powerful in the world, man in the world. He was going to be God's missionary to the nations. And he retained his purity. And that was one of the turning points of his life. How wonderful God, God has got a ministry for you. If you're his child, he's marked out a ministry for you. See that you don't spoil it. Don't touch the glory. Don't touch the gold. Don't touch the girl. But may, my last word is this. Paul had one overmastering ambition. What was it? You'll find it in Romans 15:20. Paul said, "It has always been my ambition what to do. To preach the gospel. Well, 
He couldn't have had a higher ambition than that, should he? Is that your ambition to preach the gospel? Well, wonderful. You couldn't choose any occupation uh, in life higher than that. But he didn't stop there. He said, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. Is that your ambition? Now, I've spent 25 years in Bible colleges and I've seen many generations of students. I've watched students for 60, 70 years. And I know what I'm talking about. The great ambition of most students when they want to preach the gospel is to preach the gospel where Christ has been made. Do you know that in Asia, two-thirds of the population of the world are to be found? And yet among those two-thirds, there is only 5% of the Christians in the world. 95% of Asia is without God and without hope. Why not share Paul's ambition? Paul said, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. I was in the Philippines some years ago. Uh, it was not long after our mission had been compelled to leave China. And uh, we went into all the, the uh, countries around China, and among them the Philippines. I was in the Philippines, away up in the mountains with one of our missionaries, and uh, there was a cough outside the door in the bamboo hut. And uh, I when I went out, there was a little old lady there. And she had a lovely toothless smile. And uh, she had bought a, brought a bunch of bananas for the needy missionary. <laughs> but she needed them because she was just skin and bone. But the missionary said, that old lady was the first person in this tribe to accept Christ as Savior. And when she was being baptized... The man who baptized her said, Do you believe that Jesus died for you? She said, Of course I do. Do you believe that Jesus rose again for your justification? She said, Of course I do. And wouldn't I have come sooner if you had come sooner? My, wouldn't I have come sooner wouldn't I have believed sooner if you had come sooner? But you see, nobody came, and she had seen her, her contemporaries die off one by one without God and without hope in the world. Are you willing to make it your ambition to preach Christ where he has not been named? if that is God's will for you, to give your whole life. It's wonderful to give a short term, but there's a tremendous need for those who will give their whole lives to the spreading of the gospel and the nurture of the Christians and training leadership in the national church. 
It has always been my ambition, Paul says, to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that your Son was willing to give himself for us. We thank you that you were willing to spare him from your side and you were willing to suffer with him as he suffered on the cross. And we do pray that we, in our turn, may be willing to give ourselves to you without any reservation, without any time slot, without any limitation to our discipleship. We thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit who is enab will enable us to keep Christ on the throne of our lives. And uh, we pray that from among this group of young men and young women, you would raise up many a strong band who will take the gospel to those who have never heard. And to your name we will give the glory. Amen.